To study theology is not so much an academic endeavor as it is a relational endeavor. It is the study of God himself, what he has revealed to us about his character and his nature, who we are and how we connect with him. And these foundational Christian doctrines are not something new with our generation. For nearly 2,000 years, the church has been built upon the teachings of Jesus and the apostles and prophets as written in God's word. When we do theology, we are joining together with the generations of the church that have gone before us in declaring the timeless truths of God. This has always been about a relationship. It's always been about love. I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. Who is Jesus? He's the Savior. He's anointed as prophet because he comes to declare the truth of God. No one else ever hung upon a cross and bore my sins and carried them far away. No one else was ever laid in a grave and came up on the third day for my justification. So that all those who come to Christ may enter in. So that all those who place faith in Christ might be saved, but not only saved, but sanctified. If you came here this morning seeking religion, you came to the wrong building. Oh, you guys ready to talk some theology today? Oh man, I love it. I love it. So what we're doing is we are joining together with generation after generation of studying and knowing and building our lives upon the timeless truths of God. This is what it means to study theology. And so this week, week two, uh, we're looking at Christology, the study of Christ or the Messiah, the study of Jesus. And we're looking at how we love God the Son. We're going to always orient our theology around love of God and love of what God has created because it is not primarily or just an academic endeavor. It's an endeavor of the heart. How do we actually live with our lives? Now, when, when I was about 16, I was, I was visiting a college uh, down in Southern California, and I went to this chapel that they had. Uh, they called it uh, the 911 chapel because it was at 9:11 p.m. and it was just worship in the Word. And I remember as a 16-year-old sitting there, and and the preacher got up and he started to teach from Matthew 16, where Jesus asked the disciples, "Hey, who do people say that I am?" And so they start rattling off the different lists of names. Oh, some say you're John the Baptist, or some say Elijah, or some say that you're Jeremiah or that you're one of the prophets. And then he turns and he asks the disciples um, the most important question. He says, what about you? Who do you say that I am? And I remember sitting there at 16 years old and this preacher looking out across this cr crowd of college students and saying, listen, this is the most important question you will ever answer. More important than who am I going to marry? More important than what am I going to study or what's my career going to be? Even more important than who am I? My own personal question is who do you say that Jesus is? And 21 years later, this is still the most important question in my life. And this is what we build our lives around. So this is why it's important for us to ask, man, who is Jesus? What do we know about him? So we're going to be looking at Colossians 1, uh, 15 through 20. And it kind of sets this framework for us as we look at Christology. So Colossians 1, starting in verse 15, he being Jesus is the image of the invisible God 
the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. What we take from this passage is who Jesus is. Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. He is fully God and fully man, and he came to earth as the word of God take on human flesh to reveal, to restore, and to rule. And so I, I want to look at, I want to look at the humanity of Jesus, and then I want to look at the deity of Jesus, and then I want to ask the question, what does this have to do with our everyday life? So first, the humanity of Jesus, understanding that Jesus, he is fully human. Now, the theological word uh, for this is the incarnation. God take on flesh. Uh, think of incarnate. Carne, it's the root for flesh, okay? When I was learning this, I just, for some reason, just always remembered incarnate asada, and I could just remember God in meat, right? Or God in a bod, right? Okay, so this is how you understand. No, God take on flesh, the incarnation. And what you need to to understand is Jesus actually came to earth. There's this interesting thing that's been happening the last century or so where we've started to say, you know what? We aren't actually sure if there was a man named Jesus who walked the earth 2,000 years ago. It's funny how 2,000 years after an event, we're so much smarter and more intelligent than the people who actually experienced this 2,000 years. But this is actually what's coming about. People are starting to make this argument. Well, you know, like, we don't even know that Jesus actually existed. In 1957, uh, an atheist named Bertram Russell wrote an essay called Why I'm Not a Christian. And he says, historically, it's quite doubtful whether Christ ever existed at all. And so I just want to start, is this actually a legitimate question? Should we actually question the existence of it? Not, not even talking about his deity yet, but of a human being named Jesus Christ of Nazareth that walked the earth. And, and in short, and no, it's not a legitimate question. No historian worth their salt actually questions the existence of Jesus. Why is that? Because even outside of the Bible, we have account after account after account of people making historical documentation about this person, Jesus, how he walked, things he did, and what people believed and said about him. Now, these, there, there's at least 10 first century meaning within the time of Jesus, first century non-Christian authors outside of, Christi outside of Christianity, outside of the Bible, the scriptures, who mentioned Jesus by name. These were not people who were friends of Christianity. Um, these were Jewish and Roman historians in the first century who operated with an anti-Christian agenda, but they had to acknowledge Jesus to try to discredit him. This is Josephus. He wrote the Antiquities of the Jews, and he wrote, about that time, about this time, there lived Jesus, a wise man, if indeed one ought to call him a man, for he wrought surprising feats, 
When Pilate condemned him to be crucified, those who had come to love him did not give up their affection for him. On the third day, he appeared, restored to life, and the tribe of Christians has not disappeared. And he wrote this in 93 AD, not 1993, okay? 93, within 60 years of the death of Jesus. Now, these writers, they make a lot of, these um, extra biblical writers make a lot of same claims about Jesus that are found in the New Testament. In fact, even if we did not have the New Testament, this is what from history, Jesus from history, what we could know about Jesus. He was a Jewish rabbi. We can know that people believed that he performed miracles and exorcism, that he cast out demons, that he believed that he was the promised Messiah that he was tried and crucified under Pontius Pilate as a criminal during the reign of Tiberius Caesar, and that despite his death, his followers believed he was still alive and worshiped him as God. This is Jesus from history. And by historical standards, we have an impressive amount of corroborating extra-biblical evidence without any underlying Christian agenda that points to Christ. As historian H.G. Wells wrote, I am a historian. I am not a believer, but I must confess as a historian that the penniless preacher from Nazareth is irrevocably the very center of history. Jesus Christ is easily the most dominant figure in all of history. Jesus came as a human. Jesus walked this earth 2,000 years ago. And from the New Testament, we get all kinds of things that we can understand about his humanity. Um, We have to understand Jesus came as fully human. What this means is he was born as a baby and he grew up like any other human. It says in Luke 2, this is a doctor writing this, one of the disciples of Jesus who was a medical doctor. And so he made these observations that others didn't. He said, the child grew and became strong. He grew in wisdom and stature. So he was born like all other babies and grew through his childhood. As theologian Ricardo Bambino of Talladega once prayed, dear eight pound, six ounce newborn infant Jesus, don't even know a word yet, just a little infant, so cuddly, but still omnipotent. See, Ricky Bobby in Talladega Nights, he actually has pretty good Christology. He lays it out there. This, no, he was a baby. He was an infant, and, and we, this is part of his humanity. Okay, He had a human body, meaning he got tired. We see this at Jesus when he meets the woman at the well. He became thirsty. We see this on the cross. He got hungry. We see this when he entered and fasted in the wilderness. He had a human mind. Luke again tells us that he increased in wisdom. He went through a a learning process just like all of us as other children do. He learned how to eat. He had to learn how to talk. He had to learn how to read and write and how to be obedient to his parents. The ordinary learning process was part of his, the genuine humanity of Christ. And he had a fully human experience, meaning he experienced emotions and he experienced temptation. It says he marveled. That's an emotion. He marveled at the faith of the centurion. It says that he wept with sorrow at the death of his friend Lazarus. It says he prayed with a heart full of emotion. 
as he cried out to God with loud cries and tears, he experienced the full gamut of human emotion, and he experienced temptation. As it tells in Hebrews, he, he experienced severe temptation in every respect he was tempted, just as we are, yet he was out, without sin. Jesus was fully human. But, but here's what's incredible. He wasn't just, it wasn't just that he was fully human. Jesus is fully human and will be forever. When we get glimpses of his humanity, and we get glimpses of his resurrected eternal body after death. It shows us this. It shows us the, the scars and the nails on his body, his human eternal body. Luke 24 gives us this breakdown. He's having this discussion with the disciples. He says, look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see a ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. See, the disciples see Jesus after he's resurrected, even though he's like, hey, I'm coming back after three days. I'm coming back after three days. And they're like, ah, we saw you die. And they see him. And they freak out, and they're like a ghost, like a ghost. And so he has this interaction. When he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. Why can he show them his hands and his feet after his resurrection? Because he has a body. He has a resurrected body. And while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, do you have anything to eat? He's like, it's been a few days. I'm hungry. And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it. In their presence, the first resurrected meal in the history of time was a filet fish right? <laughs> but this is speaking to the humanity, the eternal body. And when we get glimpses of heaven, it's always Jesus. He, he's standing. He's sitting. He's riding. He's eating. He's drinking. He is the eternal God-man. Jesus did not temporarily become man, but his divine nature was permanently united to his human nature, and he lives forever, not just as the eternal Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, but also as Jesus, the man born of Mary, as the Christ, the Messiah, and the Savior of his people. Jesus will remain fully God and fully man, yet one person forever. This is, man, this is Christology 101. Jesus was fully human. But also, we have to look at the deity of Jesus, that Jesus is fully God. Now, here is where the debate comes in, right? If, if I would argue that no historian with their, worth their salt would ever deny the existence of Jesus, um, billions of people would deny the deity of Jesus. This is why J.I. Packer makes the argument says, the real difficulty, the supreme mystery with which the gospel confronts us may not lie in the Good Friday message of atonement. It, Jesus dying on the cross may not be wh wh where the crux is that we, um, that we run into issues, nor the Easter message of resurrection, but in the Christmas message of incarnation. Did God actually come? It was Jesus, God in the flesh. And if Jesus asks us, who do you say that I am? Unfortunately, many Many of us would say, yeah, Jesus was a historical figure, but he was not God take on flesh and blood. On the religious side of the coin, essentially what they've boiled it down to is the New Age argument. And, and what I mean by that is they look at Jesus as an enlightened teacher. People can get behind Jesus in that sense. Like, man, like hippie Jesus was rad, right? He just went around 
feeding people, loving his enemies with his long flowing hair and his beard, right? Like, I can get behind hippie Jesus. And they treat it like, like you know, some kind of spiritual truths that we can attain in an enlightened state, like a Christianized nirvana. Entire religions, religions like Islam and Judaism and Mormonism and others, have respect for Jesus as a prophet. You will not hear them deny Jesus as a prophet while maintaining that he was not God. And on the flip side, on the secular side of the argument, many people would say, well, of course Jesus was a, a historical figure, but he never actually claimed to be God. They would argue that that was added by his followers three, four hundred years later. This is, uh, remember when the Da Vinci Code had its run and it's like heyday, okay? This is Dan Brown in the Da Vinci Code talking about this idea. He said, until the Council of Nicaea in AD 325, Jesus was viewed by his followers as a great and powerful man, but a man nonetheless. He's like, none of them actually believed that he was God or that he claimed to be God. Jesus' establishment as the Son of God was officially proposed and voted on at the Council of Nicaea. By officially endorsing Jesus as the Son of God, Constantine turned Jesus into a deity who existed beyond the scope of the human world and upgraded Jesus' status almost four centuries after Jesus' death. This is the argument. No, 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 he never claimed to be. People just added that later. And so God becoming human has always been the question behind all questions. Because, listen, if Christianity has this wrong, it has everything wrong. It has everything wrong. But if Christianity has this right, then everyone else is on the wrong path. If Jesus is and claimed to be God take on flesh, then that changes everything. So what did the followers actually believe? What did Jesus actually say? Well, uh, we know that the New Testament claimed Jesus to be God. This is the passage we just read here in Colossians. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. It refers to his eternality, his, him being in creation. He is the image of the invisible God. He's God take on flesh and blood. All throughout the New Testament, the writers over and over, what do they refer to Jesus as? They use the term kurios, which we would translate Lord. Because it's a New Testament version of the Old Testament reference to God. Lord, 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 Lord. We see this over and over and over, and there's no doubt what they meant by it. As theologian Howard Marshall writes in his book, The Origins of the New Testament Christology, he says, there is no doubt that the usage of the New Testament writers, the title Lord, is regarded as the title used of God in the Old Testament and now applied to Jesus. All of the New Testament writers, all the writings we have, all these disciples and followers of Jesus, over and over, that Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. They're not saying Jesus was a really cool guy. Jesus was a prophet. Jesus was an enlightened teacher. They're saying Jesus was God. This is why we give up our lives. You realize that every one of Jesus' disciples was martyred? Okay, Judas, Judas commits suicide before Jesus is even killed. The other 11, every one of them is martyred. These are men who scattered and ran. Like Peter is confronted by a little girl in front of a fire. He's like, I never knew Jesus. Then he sees the resurrected Jesus and he's like, this is God. I don't even want, you want to kill me? I don't even deserve to be crucified like Jesus. You crucify me upside down. 
Every single one of the disciples, except for John, they tried to martyr him by boiling him alive in oil, and he survived, and it freaked them out, so they sent him to an island where he had a vision called Revelation, right? And he had a vision of heaven. But these men, they were martyred because, no, they actually believed Jesus was God. But Jesus himself claimed to be God. Now, here's the argument that people will make. They're like, I I read the Gospels, or if you read through the Gospels, he never says, I am God. And this is true. Jesus never says, I am God, which is curious, right? Like, why, why wouldn't Jesus just say, hey, guys, I'm God, right? Let me tell you why. Because this was a polytheistic society, meaning there were many gods. And at this time, like, anybody who had any power claimed to be God, right? It was like an episode of Oprah. You get to be a God. You get to be a God. You get to be a God. They were just handing out deity left and right, okay? And so, so Jesus showing up and saying, I am God, people wouldn't even, they wouldn't even bat an eye at it, to be honest with you. They'd be like, cool, yeah, like, so is that guy. That guy's a deity. You know, she's a deity. Like, we got deities all around. Welcome to the club. Jesus showed up with a very intentional purpose. What was his pur- purpose? To show, not just claim to be a God, But he came to show the world that he was Yahweh, the personal God of Israel, take on flesh and blood. He was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He was the great I am who sent Moses into Egypt to lead the Israelites out of slavery into the promised land. He was the true Messiah, the savior of the world that they were waiting and watching for. He had a clear agenda. He didn't just show up with some bland statement saying, I am a God or I am God. He was showing, I am the great I am. I am the fulfillment of all that you've longed for. Let's look at what he said and did. I'm going to give you a lot of examples because it's helpful. And this is even, even all of them. I had to pare it down. Okay? He claimed the authority to forgive sins. That sounds like somebody who believes they are God. He assumed the authority to judge the entire world. He claimed that he invented the Sabbath. Therefore, he had authority to update the rules in observing it. He taught people to pray to him. Right? Why would somebody, why would you teach someone to pray to you if you weren't, if you didn't even yourself believe that you were God? He claimed that whoever saw him saw the Father. He said, I and the Father are one. He didn't correct people worshiping him as if he were God, right? People would bow down and worship. And it, like, he, he never said, like, oh, don't, don't do that. Like, I'm just a prophet, I'm just a teacher. He would receive their worship, he would receive their anointing. All throughout the Old Testament, when an angel shows up before people, before someone. They, they, they see it, they're in awe, and they bow down and start to worship the angel. And the angels are like, stop, bro. Like, don't. Like, I don't want this to be my last trip here, okay? Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, okay, I'm not gonna have a resurrected body. I'm just a spirit. Don't do that to me, man, right? Jesus shows up and they worship, and he receives their worship, and he says what they're doing is good. He claimed to have the power to raise himself from the dead. He claimed that to know him to it was to know God, to see him was to see God, and to receive him was to receive God. And he claimed, and he said that he was the only way to heaven. Does this sound like somebody who didn't believe they were God and didn't declare that they were God? Even the names used of God in the Old Testament, over and over, Jesus claims them for himself. He says, I am the shepherd of Israel. I am the great I am. I am the light, the Alpha and the Omega, the Almighty, the first and the last, the judge of all nations, the bridegroom. This is not someone walking around claiming to be a good moral teacher or a messenger where 300 years later they're like, we should probably 
crown him and say that he was God. And do not be mistaken. The people, the first century Jews that walked with Jesus, they knew the claims he was making. You know, you know how we know that? That's why they killed him. It tells us in John, for, the, for this reason they tried all the more to kill him. He was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. This is why C.S. Lewis, and what I think is um, really his most impactful, it, of all his writings, this is his most significant quote right here. This is like a life-changing moment for me. He says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, about Jesus, that I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. Now, why, why shouldn't we say that? A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said, claiming to be God, would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You know you're getting in good theology when you get into poached egg theology, right? You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Who do you say that I am? This is the question. And, and here's what we have to understand from the writings of Scripture. He didn't just claim to be God. He walked in a way that proved it. Um, this is why he made the blind see and the lame walk. Because he was putting his divine power on display over the sickness that embarks on all of us. This is why he calmed the raging sea showing his divine control over creation. This is why he cast out demons, showing his divine authority over the spiritual realm. This is why he revealed people's past and future, revealing, it, it, putting his, his infinite, eternal wisdom and knowledge on display for all to see. He raised people back to life, showing his sovereignty over death itself. Then he himself rose to life after death. And he appeared to over 500 witnesses to reveal. 500 witnesses, they speak to this often. They name them by name in the scriptures because as they're writing it, they're like, no, go ask Frank. He saw Jesus. Go ask Scarlett. She saw, Je those aren't biblical names, by the way, okay? Just modernize it. But th what they're doing is they're giving reference, like, go ask them. Saw them die. We know he died. People saw him. Over 500 people saw him after it was a, a proof, a display that he was God to reveal that he truly was and is the God who holds power over life and death and can be our savior forever. This is who Jesus is. Jesus was fully God and he was fully man. The theological term for this is the hypostatic union. These two natures come together in one. And David Mathis, he, he explains this and he brings it on such a personal level in such an incredible way. He says, the hypostatic union is the mysterious joining of the divine and the human in the one person of Jesus. 
it is immeasurably sweet and awe-inspiring to know that Jesus' two natures are perfectly united in his one person. Jesus is not divided. He is not two people. He is one person. His two natures are without confusion, without change, without division, without separation. Jesus is one. This means Jesus is one focal point for our worship. Because of this hypostatic union, Jesus Christ exhibits an unparalleled magnificence. The one person satisfies the complex longings of the human heart like the God-man. No one can satisfy us like Jesus. Remaining what he was, he became what he was not. That is Jesus. Remaining what he was, he remained fully God. But he became what he was not. He became like you and I. Now, here's the thing. Um, I share this, I read this, I explain this, and some of you are like, man, this is incredible. This is amazing. Like, I, I, I feel like I'm learning something or I'm grabbing something new. Some of you, it, it just fires you up to learn about Jesus. But I know that for some of us in this room, we're just like, okay, but so what? What does that have to do with my marriage falling apart? Like, I showed up because I'm drowning in addiction. I showed up today looking for hope, and you're reading a bunch of historical facts, and you're reading quotes that I can, you know, kind of grasp and understand, so what? Let me, let me explain the so what and why this matters, because here's the thing. Only Jesus can be our Savior, because he is fully God and fully man. Archibald Alexander he said, all my theology is reduced to this narrow compass. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. This is why he came. And only Jesus could be our sub substitutionary sacrifice because he is fully God, fully man. Th think about this. Uh, pretend, think about your car, okay? Let's pretend you really like your car, okay? Some of you guys have a car you really like. You're like, oh, this is like precious to me. Some of you guys like don't like your car. Pretend you have a car you like, okay? You got a Tesla or, a, you know, a Tesla. Okay, something that you like, okay? And uh, a friend comes up to you and is like, hey, can I, can I borrow your car uh, for the weekend? You know, I'm going up to Washington. It'd be great. Like, I just need a car. Um, and uh, you're like, you know what? What's mine is yours. Like, take care of it. Fill it up. Wash it when you're done. But like, you know, yeah, you can borrow my car, okay? And a couple of days later, uh, you get, the doorbell rings and you open the door and they're standing there with, uh, with their bicycle. And, uh, and you're like, what happened? They're like, so I have bad news and good news. And the bad news is, uh, I was following Siri's direction to cross over the Columbia, and she told me to turn. I knew there was no road there, but I didn't. I, you have to listen, and I accidentally drove it into the Columbia River. Shout out Michael Scott, okay? And uh, I just had to follow, and so, uh, so your car is at the bottom of the Columbia River, but the good news is you can have my vehicle now. Uh, you can have my bike. What would you do in that moment? You're like, that's not a fair compensation, right? You borrowed my car and you gave me your bike. That, that, is, not, that is not equal you know, compensation. Or like, let's say somebody lost your dog, right? They're, take your dog for a walk and they lost and they show up and bring a pigeon, right? You're like, no, this is not, I don't need to send messages. What's happening right now? I don't, I, this is not equal. Or somebody breaks your iPhone and replaces it with an Android. You're like, I don't need green, I don't need no green bubbles in my group texts. Like, what, is, this is not, this is, wow, the Android crowd, yeah. Yeah, okay. 
All right, hey, Christology, guys, just for the sake of illustration, right? See, here's the thing. Track with me on this. Only a perfect, sinless human can atone for the sins of the world. And unless Christ was fully man, he could not have died to pay the penalty for man's sin. He could not have been a substitute, a substitutionary sacrifice for us. How do I know this? This is what Hebrews argues. It says, he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Why does the Christology, the humanity of Jesus matter? Because of Christ's humanity, he can, be, he can die on our behalf. He can live a perfect, sinless life. He had to be made like us in every way so that he could make atonement. The sacrifice that is an acceptable substitute for us. But here's the other piece. What we see all throughout Scripture over and over is salvation does not come from man. Salvation is from the Lord. The whole message of Scripture is designed to show us that no human being, no created being, no creature could ever save man, only God himself. Only someone who is infinitely God could bear the full penalty of all the sins of the world. Any finite creature would have been incapable to bear that. And yet, Jesus, fully God and fully man, is able to accomplish both because he is the great I am. He is God. Take on flesh and blood. He is both God who saves and the human perfect enough to pay the penalty of the cost of our sin. Man, why does Christ, what's the so what of Christology? It's so that you can be saved. And it's only by Jesus. Second, so what? Only Jesus can be our mediator. Because we were alienated from God in our sin. We are separated from God in our sin. We needed someone to come between God and ourselves and bring us back to him. We needed a mediator who could represent us to God and could represent God to us. There's only one person who has ever fulfilled that requirement. And Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy 2. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Jesus Christ. What this means is we have a God who relates to us. We have a God who understands us and knows us. As the author of Hebrew writes, he says, we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who is, has been tempted in every way, just as we are yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence, with boldness, with courage, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. What the author of Hebrews is saying is Jesus understands you. Jesus knows what you've been through, your pain and your suffering and your heartache and, where, and your temptation. He understands it. He's experienced it all. And because of that, he can be your mediator between you and the Father. Um, my kids, we're always trying to teach them to be like bold and courageous. And part of that is like learning to talk to other humans. 
Um, some of you know that vibe. You're like, if I could just not adult today, that would just be amazing and not have to talk to other humans. I, I saw a few gentle, quiet nods uh, in the room. I, I see that nod. Um, and so my son, he's actually gotten really good at this. Um, we'll be in a store and he has a question. Instead of asking us, he'll ask somebody at the store. He'll just go find somebody at the store and he's like, you know, we're sitting literally in a store and he's having a, you know, a, a discussion, a deep conversation about, you know, some kind of product that they're selling. And we walk up and here's this nine-year-old, like, you know, asking questions about sourcing and all these things. So uh, my daughter is very different. Um, my daughter, it takes a lot for her to have the courage. Um, but what makes a difference for her is when mom or dad go with her and hold her hand. And so we were uh, down in Portland just a couple weeks ago and um, we're grabbing dinner at, at, a, um, at, a, at a burger slider place and uh, Nova was sharing with us, sharing our food with us and Dax got his own like kid's meal. And so they brought out his meal and um, it, had a, it had a lollipop on it. Well, Nova didn't have a lollipop. You, go, you always can tell when a you know, waiter or waitress has kids because they'll bring two. They're like, we're just gonna save you the misery and just bring two, right? And uh, so what, the first thing Nova notices more than the meal is this lollipop, right? And so she's like, at some point, she finally gets enough courage and she's like, I want, I want one too, right? And so we're like, okay, you have to ask. You have, like, you gotta be courageous and ask. And so she's like, I don't wanna ask. I'm like, well, you have to, if you want one, you have to do it. And so finally she looks at me and she's like, will you come with me? And I'm like, yeah, of course I'll come with you. And so I grab her hand and I'm walking with her and we go up to the waitress and the waitress turns and is like, oh, what can I help you with? And Nova looks up just very quietly and she's like, oh, I have a wally pop, <laughs> right? <laughs> the waitress, you know, looks to me for affirmation and I'm like, yes, she can have a lollipop, which means two things. One, yes, she's allowed to have one. And two, I just, with inflation, I just had to take out a home equity line of credit to afford dinner here, right? <laughs> so please give her a lollipop, right? And so she takes it and hands it to her. Nova, even though she's shy and quiet, she has so much courage and boldness depending on whose hand she's holding. And what this doctrine of mediation that Jesus is our great high priest is saying is you should have boldness to enter the presence and the throne room of God because you have a mediator who's holding your hand. His nail-scarred hands are holding you through the whole process. This is why this matters. This is the so what of Christology. He's experienced our pain and our temptation and our betrayal, and he comes to the Father, and he says, yes, let's draw near. Let's be present. Let's heal. Let's forgive. I know their pain, and they are made righteous by my blood. And so I am the mediator between God and man. And lastly, you guys, only Jesus can restore humanity. You realize we are created with great purpose and calling to come alongside and partner with God in ruling and reigning in this world. But we fell short. We turned inward. We trusted ourselves. We rejected God. And so we're experiencing this fallout of our purpose this is why, we, why work has thorns and thistles. There's a fallout of our purpose, and we're not able to rule and reign alongside under God in the way that we were created and intended to. Yet because of Jesus, he shows up as a man, 
takes on flesh and blood, lives a perfect life as a human being, and he establishes his eternal monarchy over all of creation, he fulfills God's original purpose in putting man on earth. And because of that, he restores our purpose. Ephesians 1 says, he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. Jesus has been given all authority. All authority on heaven and earth has been given to him. And he is the rightful ruling and reigning king. What's the so what of Christology? Because he took on flesh and blood. Jesus has given us our purpose and calling back. We can partner with him in bringing his kingdom to earth, his rule and reign. You guys, Jesus, he came to reveal who God is and what he is like. Jesus, he came to restore our relationship with God and save us from eternal separation to restore our calling and purpose. But here's the best part. Not just reveal, not just restore, but he's coming back to rule. Jesus is coming back to rule, establishing his eternal kingdom and reign forever. A couple weeks ago, I was in North Carolina and uh, I was in Charlotte and we had this opportunity to go to the, the house that Billy Graham grew up in. And so we go walk through this house, and behind this house is this big, massive, incredible barn that they've converted. They call it the Billy Graham Library. And you go through this like kind of walk through time, and you experience the life of Billy Graham and, and, and um, the ministry of Billy Graham, probably one of the greatest evangelists who's ever lived. And you start out in his farm, and, 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 and uh, you, you get to know his family and his wife, and then you learn about in the 1950s, he starts doing these um, tent revivals down in Los Angeles, these crusades down in Los Angeles. And he starts to build this name and reputation, and people want it, from all around the world want to know and hear from Billy Graham. And so one of my favorite rooms was um, the media room where they talked about his, uh, the impact he made through radio and TV, and they showed all these different interviews that he would have with some of the biggest names of the day, interviewed by, by Woody Allen and guys like Johnny Carson. And they were showing this interview, and here's what's amazing about watching Billy Graham in these interviews. They would ask him these brutally hard questions. They were always trying to get, get him. And he would answer truthfully and honestly, but in a way that like, people would laugh and be like, and, and embrace the truth. Of what, they would ask him about premarital sex, they would ask him about hell, and he, just had, he was light on his feet, and he was quick-witted, and he, they, they just, you saw this enjoyment in these conversations. But there's this one moment where Johnny Carson, there's this lull, and Johnny Carson says something. He says, you know, Billy, I have a feeling that if Jesus came back, we'd do him in again. And the crowd kind of starts, you know, laughing, like, oh, yeah, that's, yeah, we probably would. We're dumb. And Billy, he just gets this piercing look on his face. And he says, oh, no. And the Bible, it tells us that Jesus is coming back. But it tells us the first time he came in love. He came to be our sacrificial servant and die on our behalf. But when he comes back, 
He's coming in power to rule and reign and no one will do him in. This is the Jesus that we worship. He is eternal. He is God. He is eternal. He is man, fully God, fully man. He reveals what God is like. He restores our relationship and he is coming back to rule and to reign for all eternity. And it tells us that on that day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And I don't know about you, but I'm not waiting for that day. Jesus is worthy of our praise and our worship. Jesus, we love you. We love that you drew near to us, that you took on flesh and blood, that you understand us in a way that you can be our great high priest and our mediator. Jesus, I believe that you walked this earth 2,000 years ago. I believe that you lived a perfect sinless life. I believe that you died upon that cross for my sins. And I believe that three days later, you conquered over death, raising again to new life for all eternity. And Jesus, I believe you're coming back. Jesus, would you come back soon? And until that day happens, Jesus, would we worship you with all of our lives? We praise you and we worship you. And Jesus, in your name and nature, we say, amen.